Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. Why do I know that date, Josh? Because it's my son's birthday. Happy birthday, Lorenzo. Happy birthday, Lorenzo. Very cool. (laughs) He's 23 today. Woo! Oh, wow. Yeah, we all survived it. Um, (laughs) I know you're in the throes of it. I know, looking forward to that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Our guest today is Josh Ritter, who's a former L.A. County prosecutor, and he is a current criminal defense attorney based here in Los Angeles. And he also is the host of True Crime Daily's Sidebar podcast. Welcome back, Josh. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much for having me back. And how is your daughter? And how old is Ryan? She is a year and a half uh, and she's fantastic. And she's now walking and running and grabbing and demanding things. So we've got our hands full. Yes, you do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Well, that's a wonderful update on Ryan. We're always so excited about the growing crime family here. So many people, (laughs) new babies. We're so excited. Oh, thank you. So here's what we're looking at this week. A former employee of the Oregon Department of Human Services is accused of kidnapping and sexually assaulting a defenseless special needs woman. This is a woman who can only communicate through drawings and pictures. She's nonverbal, okay? Living in a facility to aid her, protect her. The alleged assault occurred while the caseworker was taking the woman out for one of those secure special visits where you go outside into the community and you enjoy a lunch out. Yeah, that's what happened here. But first, an even more horrendous case. This is an update on a Missouri case that we covered here on the podcast when it first happened. This is a case about a little girl, four years old, who drowned in an icy lake. She was beaten also. Blisters everywhere, bruises around her neck and her body. Why was she beaten? 
oh, you know, sometimes you're always saying the why, the why, the why. Here's the why. The people accused of killing her thought she had the devil in her. She's four years old. Josh, this is insanity. It is. Uh, you know, you, you you cover a lot of disturbing stories on the show. Uh, over the course of my career, I've read hundreds, if not thousands of police reports that are disturbing. Um, in reviewing the affidavit uh, attached to the complaint in this case, I had a I had a tough time getting through it. This is this is just so incredibly disturbing. The torture that this young girl went through uh, while and we'll talk about it while she's all she's trying to do is run to her parents for help. And they're doing nothing, if not aiding and abetting in this whole thing. It is it shakes you to your core how disturbing this whole thing is. It's so disturbing. It's so horrific. I honestly am surprised it has not received more coverage. I really am. You know, we did it when it happened because we just could not believe it. And then we've been waiting for the cases to progress. And there's an update. But again, you know, not big headlines. And I don't understand why this case isn't getting the attention that it deserves. Because honestly, um, the real demons here are all the adults in her life. They're the demons. They're the real demons with evil in them. And I believe that. So we're talking about the murder. Four-year-old Jessica Mast. She was killed by a couple who lived next door to the Mast family. They all went to the same church. And what's also confusing here is that Jessica's family and one of the neighbors, they all have the same last name, but the neighbors... And the family are not related. So I just want to clarify that as we're trying to follow who allegedly did what. So one of the neighbors accused of killing Jessica has just pleaded guilty to second degree murder. His alleged accomplice and the parents are still facing charges for their roles in this murder. So here's the thing. Ethan Mast is the neighbor. He is the one who pleaded guilty to Jessica's murder. According to the police, Ethan Mast and his live-in girlfriend, Courtney Allman, were the ones who killed Jessica, if you will, physically. But the parents are not without guilt here, in my opinion. Both were charged. According to Jessica's parents, the neighbors tortured the whole family. And the only one spared in the house was a tiny little baby. That in itself is a miracle, that they didn't do anything that is tiny baby. And this all happened right before Christmas in December of 2020. So about a year and a half ago, right? Right. Sunday, December 20th at 1 a.m., a call is made to 911. James Mast, the father, Jessica's father, tells the dispatcher that his four-year-old daughter Jessica is dead. Deputies respond to this rural home near Cole Camp. They find a four-year-old girl wrapped in a pink blanket on the bedroom floor. Investigators said that the girl was clearly already dead. She was cold to the touch, severe purple bruising everywhere, ruptured blisters. I mean, it's just horrific, the state of her body. Yeah. The father tells the police that the child had been beaten, submerged, in a freezing pond. It is December in Missouri, people. Yeah. Submerged, held down. In Can you imagine how frightened she was? And then 
they take her lifeless body and they just leave it on the shoreline. Do you know how cold, how bitter cold it is, even if she had any ounce of life left in her? Right. And then yeah. they finally wrap her in the blanket and bring her in the house. And I guess, what are they all doing? Talking, figuring out, oh, what do we do now? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll add one, you know, disturbing little detail to this that was in the police report. When the father was asked, why did he wait so long to call? Because apparently the child was still alive, clinging to life, but still alive when they brought her back into the house. And he said he didn't call until he realized that she was dead. She maybe could have been saved. Had he called immediately, realizing that she was slipping into some sort of distress or hyperthermia, she might have been saved. But he, he waited until she was dead. And then he thought, well, maybe I better call the police. It just is so disturbing. Josh, this dad could have called somewhere weeks into this because yeah. supposedly this torture went on for weeks by the neighbors. So yeah. I agree with you. He had one final opportunity to save this child and he didn't take that opportunity, but he had multiple chances to stop this. A hundred percent. Especially since, you know, it seems like what was going on here, whether he bought into it or whether he was brainwashed, I really don't know what to believe here, but you know, what kind of control did these neighbors have on him? Yeah. I mean, there's this, like you've pointed out, there's this kind of weird, um, religious element to all of this. They're talking about the child being possessed and that they're just trying to train the child and they go to the same church. But I'm <laughs> I'm sorry. Now, now being a new father, I cannot imagine witnessing the kind of torture over weeks to my four year old. And by the way, also the two year old who yeah. happened to have survived and allowing it to happen and and doing nothing about it. And, and that why I, is why I believe they're charged criminally. I, I, this, you cannot use the excuse of I was afraid or this is a religious thing and allow a child to be essentially tortured to death. Right. So as you said, there were three children in the house. There was Jessica, who's four, two-year-old toddler and a baby. So when investigators go to the house, of course, they first find Jessica. Then they find the girl's mother, Mary Mast who's 29 at the time, and her two-year-old son, they were severely beaten and they were taken to the hospital. The little baby, an infant girl, appeared not to be harmed. So the father claims that these actions really are the work of what I would say, the devil neighbors, 21-year-old Courtney Allman and 35-year-old Ethan Mast. Here's what's amazing. The father told investigators that the beatings had been going on for two weeks, that he too had suffered beatings, he said with a spoon. Now, please explain to me, if the only weapon these idiots from next door have is a frickin' wooden spoon, right. this man doesn't have the ability to stand up to them and defend his family? Yeah, and, and like you pointed out, it's not like they're um, trapped in some cave uh, and uh, being held at gunpoint. At any time, they, they talk about the neighbors go back home and they're just waiting for them to come back. Call 911 in between. It's 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 just beyond understandable as to why the father especially allowed this to take place for as long as he did. And that excuse of religion is only going to go so far with jurors. And I, 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 I do think these people will be held criminally responsible. 
Oh, absolutely. And as you said, that the neighbors would go home. Apparently, there were security cameras in the house, which the neighbors had access to. So then they could actually watch the family. So I guess they would know if they called 911. But so what? The police will show up. Then what? I mean, come on. None of this, you know, made. But it's interesting. Apparently, the beatings were not videotaped because you the the police said that when they saw the cameras and they played back the cameras they could see the neighbors entering conversations looking at cell phones and then the camera being in the kitchen being turned off so uh we don't believe that that was captured of course we don't know everything until this goes to trial but that's our belief now here's the other thing so when again you know and the police are questioning the father here asking, why did you allow the beatings to continue on his wife and his children? He again responded that the wife, his wife had been identified as being a demon, having a demon inside her, and so did Jessica and the other child. So horrible things were going to happen, he believed, he told police, if this situation of the demons was not taken care of. Now here's the other thing. Prosecutors have said that the father claimed that he also was forced to sexually abuse Jessica as well. Give me a break. I'm sorry. Just disgusting. I don't believe any of this bunk. So ultimately, all the adults in this case have been charged, including Jessica's parents, as we've said. The two surviving masked children, the toddler and the baby, have been placed in protective custody. Now, let's look at the parents and their role in all of this as we're talking about this case. So James and Mary Mast each face first-degree murder charges for Jessica's killing. And according to the official complaint, when the cops found the mother, Mary, all beaten up in the house, they asked her why she, okay, we've been talking about the dad, let's talk about mom. Sure. Why didn't she call police? What happened here? She said, quote, this has been a huge God thing that they convinced us of. What the hell does that mean? Is a big God thing? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, what? I, 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 I don't get it. She she made another comment when they said they were going to take the children away. She said, I understand that's fine because I shouldn't have fallen for it. I, fallen I, for I, it? Yeah. I, I, it's like now, now with a child dead, cold, cold and frozen to death dead. Now you realize that maybe you shouldn't have fallen for it, or maybe this maybe this religious thing had gone a little bit too far. It's the blase way in which yeah. the mother and the father answer these questions, as yeah. if it's like, well, you know, because they had the devil in them. Oh, well, right. you know, it was a God thing. That's yeah. the thing, as opposed to the horror of it all. The, the responding police officer wrote in the report, that they were taken by the fact that the father was not acting more upset. Like if a parent calls and says that their child is dead, you know, they are generally hysterical. You would expect them to be falling apart. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he's like you said, kind of blase and matter of fact. Oh yeah. Here I, I wrapped her in a blanket when I realized she had died. There she, there she is on the bed. The father further told police that God was speaking through the female neighbor, that would be Courtney, and he told police that he was threatened with torture if he called police and didn't go along with it. So he's claiming, hey, it's not my fault because they threatened me. So I really have to hand it to the responding officer here because he told the father, this is all in the report, that God 
would never tell anyone to kill little Jessica. And the cop wasn't done. And the cop told him, because he asked him, like, okay, so you're talking about God. What religion are you? Then the officer tells the father. And that a true Christian, and I'm quoting from the police report, and that a true Christian would never let this happen to their child. And that is absolutely the truth. Yeah, yeah. You got to wonder, is there some sort of mental illness here or 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 brainwashing or something? I just can't imagine two parents getting to this point where they're allowing this to happen or cooperating with it, participating. It's just so, um, it's so inexplicable. I suppose it's possible. When we originally did this case, Dr. Judy Ho was on the program and she was talking about those issues of brainwashing, mind control, all of these things, which, you know, we, we do see, but at the end of the day, while it may be up partial explanation for behaviors it is by no means an excuse right absolutely not it's certainly not in a criminal so many opportunities it's not like this happened in a short period it was several hours they were under duress they didn't know what was going on you know i'm not saying that that's excusable but different things happen in a short period of time that's a one-time event versus you know, a series of events over the course of several weeks with this continued torture of the children. And the worst part of this is as Jessica is being tortured with a belt and other things, she's screaming for her parents who are standing there to help her. That was the part that just ripped me apart. There's the, the, the officer describes how the parents told how the child would be running for them, trying to get away from these savage beatings and that the parents would run away from the children because they were told that the, that God wanted it this way. And you just picture that scene of this helpless child with no one to turn to in the world, but their parents and their parents are abandoning him. while 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 essentially her life is slowly being taken away from her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are the most frightening moments for children, I think. You know, we've seen this play out in several cases where in those last seconds of life or those last minutes of life, and in Jessica's case, the last two weeks of her life, at those most frightening, frightening moments where her instinct is always to run to her parents for protection, it is always the parents denying the protection. And that to me, I think, you know, reaches to the core of a child's fear and needs and most basic needs. So that's why I find this case just like so, so horrific. Now, the, the parents, Jessica's parents, did tell the cops, whether any of this is true or not, that the neighbors just showed up one day and declared that there was a demon situation and they needed to, like, enforce it. So it's very possible that the first conversation maybe wasn't all that violent and it was a sense of curiosity. It's like, what do you mean that they're possessed? What, like, why do you say that? Did something, do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, that it could have could have built up. It could have been, I imagine it didn't immediately start with beatings with a belt and, you know, half drownings in the pond, that it started slowly. But like you've pointed out several times, eventually you reach a point where you've got to, you know, are these people not interacting with anyone else in their community? Are they not able 
able to speak to coworkers and talk about, hey, is this is this wrong? Should I get the police involved? It, you know, for weeks this was going on and they were doing nothing. It just it, it you, you can't fathom it. No. And I think if you, you just keep a few things in perspective, it's holidays. Kids are likely out of school by this time. We're still in the throes of a pandemic, so people are still at home. So I think if you keep that in perspective about the how couldn't anyone know, and it was a fairly rural area as well. So I think all those things led to this perfect storm and opportunity because of that. And um, it's also interesting that the beatings started with Jessica. So they all started with the child, and then it moved on to marry the mother and the toddler. Yeah. So Courtney Allman, the neighbor, she is charged with second-degree murder, has been given approval for a change of venue. Oh, because she couldn't get a fair trial, because everyone (laughs) in the neighborhood has heard of the horrific things that took place in that house. Anyway, it's been granted. It's been granted. I mean, the last thing you would want is for something to happen, like a conviction to then be overturned because it wasn't a fair and impartial jury. I get that, people. I get it. I just, you know, I have right. limited compassion here. <laughs> Do you find that interesting that the change of venue was granted? Well, they if rarely it is, are. They rarely are. And usually because these trials are taking place in much larger communities where you can say, well, listen, Listen, this community is so diverse that I'm sure we can find folks that have no idea about this case. But maybe this community is so small that it is absolutely the only thing anyone is talking about in the coffee shop and local grocery store. And so they felt we just cannot find a jury who has not made up their mind about this. The other aspect might be they were thinking about I don't know what this local kind of congregation religious community is i don't know maybe they maybe they're they felt they couldn't find folks that were not attached to that church in some sort of way Mm -hmm. and the the sheriff has said you know because immediately when this happened and was discovered because this is a huge case for this small community and this police department he said everyone was worried that there was a cult in town and he says there is there's no evidence of it being a cult. Yes, they were all connected through a church, but this would be, you know, the the actions of individuals within that church not sanctioned by the church. But you're probably right. It's probably a pretty big church and trying to find someone not connected to it might be very difficult. The no. court is also waiting for the results of a mental examination that was requested by Courtney's attorney in January. We don't know the results of that. You asked about mental illness. Not you surprising. Know? I mean, you, you could see they might want to pursue some sort of insanity defense. Not surprising. She's being held without bond. Now, as for the parents... Of Jessica. They are charged with first degree murder. And as far as we know, they've not gone to trial yet. Our producer contacted the prosecutor's office for an update there. Strategy wise, Josh, what do you think about this? You have, you go after the neighbors first. Everybody's charged. You go after the neighbors first, um, trial wise. Um, The first one, he pleads out. Yeah. Courtney looks like she's probably headed to trial. And the parents will be last. What's the yeah. strategy there? I don't know. I, you know, it, it's funny, too, because the the who sounds like the most culpable person is the male neighbor uh, pled to a second degree. And you can understand 
how second degree might have been on the table because we're, we're talking about intent, right? When, when you've got first degree, there must be some sort of premeditation. And I imagine a built-in defense for both of the neighbors is going to be, we're not trying to kill anybody. We were trying to help. We were trying to exercise this demon from this child. I don't buy it. I don't think many people would buy it, but you could understand how that would at least attack the, the mens rea, the mental state. As far as why the parents would be tried later, I'm not sure if there is a strategy behind that, either from the defense or the prosecution. If I am the defense attorneys for the parents, though, I I would think I would be trying to cooperate with authorities as much as possible to receive some sort of leniency and turn on the the neighbors because they're, you know, end of the day, we're, we're upset with these parents for what they didn't do. And we're we're just so distraught by how do you allow that to happen to your child? At the end of the day, the actions were taken by those neighbors. They're the ones holding the belt. They're the ones dunking the child into the lake. They're the ones who actually directly caused the death of this child. And and the parents just stood by and watched and should have intervened. But you, you would imagine as a defense team for the parents, that would be your strategy, which it's curious why it hasn't happened here. And that's presuming that we believe the parents. Right. right. I, I mean, let's face it. It's much easier to say they did it. Yeah. Wasn't well, us. Sounds like there may be some video evidence. Maybe something in that video evidence is what convinced authorities to charge them with first degree. Maybe you're right. Maybe they were far more cooperative. We don't know. Right. Yeah. We're sitting here talking about this. We haven't seen the evidence, but maybe there's something in that evidence we haven't seen that convinced them that there was more premeditation than kind of just being victims themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, and I say, I've said many times before, we're going to watch this case. We're going to see what happens to the parents and we're going to do an update when we have it for you because Jessica deserves justice. Yeah. Before we move on to our next case, here's a quick word from our sponsor. If your least favorite question of the day is, what are we having for dinner? Then it might be time to check out HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week. So you get convenience without skimping on quality. HelloFresh cuts down on the time spent in the kitchen with meals ready in about 30 minutes or less. They even have quick and easy meals, which are 20 minute recipes with low prep and easy cleanup options. Plus, HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal of the same quality. And you can save on average over $65 per month when you order HelloFresh instead of grocery shopping. I can tell you that the produce is fabulous and fresh, but I also want to talk about all the ingredients that come pre-portioned in little packages. I mean, literally down to the Parmesan cheese or, for example, the sour cream. I still have you know, a bunch of those that I like to use for other meals because it's so convenient. So go to HelloFresh.com slash TCD16 and use code TCD16, that's for True Crime Daily, for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash TCD16. Don't forget to use the code TCD16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Our next case is also horrific. A DHS employee 
is accused of kidnapping and sexually assaulting a woman who was in his care. Zachary Glover, 28 years old, an employee of the Oregon Department of Human Services, is accused of kidnapping a woman with significant disabilities in his care, driving her to a secluded location, and then sexually assaulting her. He was arrested on November 30th, and he's charged with three felonies, first-degree rape, first-degree sexual abuse, second-degree kidnapping, along with a misdemeanor for his official misconduct. Now, the victim. She has severe autism, cognitive issues. She communicates using pictures, videos, and drawings. She cannot communicate verbally and explain to someone what is going on. Here's why I think this case is very important. I try really hard on this podcast to cover cases about our most vulnerable because I truly believe that it is people with special needs. Oftentimes we're talking about children here, but here we're talking about an adult and how vulnerable they are to those around them and those who are taking care of them. And obviously this is not okay, but I think it's important that we always highlight these cases so people can be more vigilant. Yeah. You know, this case is important. This case is very important. Thank God, you know, she survived. But I have to wonder, how do you help someone with therapy when they've been through something so traumatic and it communication itself is very challenged. Yeah. This is what I worry about. Yeah. How will she be helped? I I I don't know. I don't I I don't know how somebody recovers from this especially like you point out with the limited capacity that that she has. It, it it's also raised questions for me how was she able to expose what was taking place? Yes. I, I we haven't had much explanation as to how this was discovered and how I mean, how do you, do you have somebody like this testify? I don't know. I don't even know if that's possible. It's going to present a lot of interesting issues as far as proving uh, what took place if this ever heads to a trial. Yeah, absolutely. That part is fascinating because it didn't happen. The revelation of the allegation didn't happen immediately. We don't know the details of that. Presumably, we will find out more as this case progresses. So here's the background because something had to have happened and you know it's very possible that she started reacting very um strongly in his presence yeah right she could have started having very physical reactions to seeing him yeah that could have tipped off the other caseworkers in the facility which which makes me wonder is this the only instance or had it been ongoing to the point that they finally realized something was going on and were able to communicate with her and her limited capacity and find out what was taking place? Yeah. Here's the background. So Zachary worked as a direct support crisis specialist for the Oregon DHS for about four years. He worked in the office of developmental disabilities stabilization and crisis unit. Okay. So this seems, this sounds to me is like we're dealing with the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. Yeah. The crisis unit operates a 24 hour residential program. And it also serves individuals who have either intellectual 
mental, developmental disabilities, various challenges. So Zachary Glover was in charge of this particular residential facility where the victim lived. As part of his duties, Zachary took the victim on outings in a secure van to local restaurants. Um, I think all of, all of us have seen, as we're getting back to normal in our communities, when you see um, people from uh, group homes who are out with counselors and are supervised, you know, whether they're shopping or they're stopping for a meal, let's say at a fast food place or a local restaurant. We've seen this, right? Yeah. So this is, this is the environment in which she's being taken out, right, for social communication with people and, and, you know, having a little bit of life. So he was taking her out only. And that's very possible that that was normal. You know, I don't know how much attention she may have needed. So on November 2nd, while on an outing with the victim, Glover is alleged to have driven down a dead end road toward a cemetery. Once he reached the dead end, he parked the van and then he sexually assaulted the woman. About 10 days later, the crisis unit, meaning the facility and the people there, learned, this is how it's been described uh, publicly, we don't know more, learned of the attack. And then um, they called the Oregon State Police to investigate. So the charges are as follows. Well, first he was placed on administrative leave while the investigation was going on. And then the district attorney's office convened a um, grand jury. So and that's interesting. Why, you know, I always ask this question. Why go to the grand jury versus just charging the man? Yeah, there's there's a couple of reasons. It's rare instance to use a grand jury, but there's a couple of reasons. One, it might be that they wanted to conduct some of their investigation in, in secret because the grand jury is secret. The, the no public is allowed in. The findings are, are not uh, disclosed to the public. So you can kind of conduct an investigation, as you were, to see if you have enough evidence to indict someone without alerting them that you're conducting that investigation for an indictment. The other reason might be that there's just so many moving parts. If you've got a lot of different defendants might be a reason that you would do it, um, which doesn't obviously exist here. So it makes me wonder if they were just making sure that they had all their ducks in a row, as it were, before they released an indictment. So he ultimately is indicted. Zachary Glover is charged with depriving the victim of her constitutional right to bodily integrity while acting under the color of law. The victim, again, communicates mostly through pictures, videos, and drawings. So what what is interesting is that apparently the case is also being investigated by the Portland FBI. So the fact that one of the charges, this is in addition to the sexual assault and kidnapping charges, which would be state charges. Mm-hmm. Um, what is this, the depriving the victim of her constitutional right to bodily integrity? Is that where the federal case would come in? Yeah, that's a federal charge. Um, I, I, I'm. It's unclear if the, if there's both a dual kind of prosecution federally and statewide. But um, the 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 feds would get involved, I imagine, because he was a government worker in the sense that he was in charge of this care facility. I'm, I'm thinking that might be the nexus. But I do also know that these types of federal charges carry 
incredibly um, onerous uh, sentences. I mean, he I'm not sure what his exposure is here, but I imagine it's very, very serious. It's interesting. It's almost as if if they couldn't get him, let's say, on the uh, sexual assault charge and the kidnapping that may be on the federal charge of, in essence, in my world, uh, um, you know, violating her constitutional rights, that right. that might be the way. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 you, you see this not all that often, but we've seen it kind of recently in the in the case with the George Floyd, with the three officers, they face federal charges. Now they're going to face state charges. Um, uh, uh, you see it in the McMichael case. We saw that where they faced state charges and now they faced federal charges. It's not all that common, but there's sometimes an, uh, a reason for it. And maybe that was here is that the feds wanted to make sure that a government worker was certainly prosecuted properly for this type of a crime of, like you said, victimizing an incredibly vulnerable person. So if convicted, uh, Glover faces a maximum sentence of life in prison. I presume that would be for all the charges. Zachary Edward Glover is being held without bail in the Marion County no. Jail. No. So, oh, yeah. my goodness, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think there's a lot more we're going to learn about that case, too, because like you point out, how, how you know, was there an eyewitness we don't know about that caught this? How long had this been going on? Was the victim able to somehow communicate this? There's 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 a lot of vague descriptions that have been in the media to tell us what happened. But I imagine we'll, we'll, this will be fleshed out with details. And I hope this is one of those cases that you follow. Yeah. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on social media. And here is our producer, Will Updike. Hey, Will. Hey, Anna. How's it going? Good. So this week we have kind of a heartwarming one. It's like about half heartwarming. Uh, So apparently an 18-year-old Loyola University student was turned into the police by his mother after he allegedly robbed a train conductor at gunpoint. Now, how this all went down was uh, on a commuter train in the Chicago area, a passenger pulled out a semi-automatic handgun and announced a robbery. I, do you have to announce a robbery for it to be a robbery? I think I think people get what's going on when you when you brandish the weapon. Not if um, they've got, you know, their AirPods in and they're not listening. Yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah. To, now you have to now get their with, attention. <laughs> yeah. Now you might need to get somebody's attention. But uh, the suspect allegedly stole money from the conductor before fleeing on foot as the train pulled into the station. Now, the suspect in this one, Zion Brown, reportedly said he stole the money because he was hungry and he was trying to buy a snack before his next university lecture, which Some kind of snack there. Uh, But Brown's mother reportedly recognized him in the photos and drove him to the police station to turn himself in. Cannot imagine what that car ride to the police station must have been like. (laughs) Oh, he was scared. Let me tell you. You think he's afraid of the police? Given the little bit you're telling me about his mother, I'm more afraid of his mother. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point. Mm -hmm. So we got some great comments on this one on our True Crime Daily Facebook. A lot of people did side with the mother, obviously. Uh, Bonita L said, this mother needs the key to the city. Good job, mother. Uh, which, yeah, great. I mean, great work. Uh, she's like, she's 
practically Batman for this. Uh, Jessica J said, this is holding your children accountable and teaching them right from wrong. Kudos to mom. It's a hard decision to make, but she knew what was best and the right action to take. A lot of people were overwhelming support for the mom in this one. Uh, Erica Teese had a personal story. She said, I didn't rob anybody, but I did hack into my high school's computer system and change the grades on my report card. After I printed it out, I went back and changed it back so that way the teachers wouldn't know. And no one ever would have found out about this if my mom didn't call BS on my math score and turn me into the school. So another mom uh, forcing the kid to be responsible for their actions. Um, how, are, how are you that brilliant to be able to hack in, but you're failing math at the same time? There right? you go. <laughs> right? Because you have to have math skills, you know, for hacking. You've got, you know, algorithms and what, you know. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you would think so. I think it's a an application situation. Like maybe you know, maybe maybe just shift some of those efforts. Uh, Carrie L said, "Going wild west just for a snack, man. If I was hungry, I'd just steal a snack. Probably not rob someone at gunpoint, right?" Which fair, yeah, that is uh, that, that does seem to be a, a an easier option. Uh, there was also some confusion about how this happened on a train in 2022. Uh, Brianna S said. Where did he find a train conductor to rob at gunpoint in 2022? Uh, look, there there are still trains out there. They exist. Passenger trains, metro in many cities. Uh, but yeah, not often that you hear about a robbery on a train anymore. Well, we're getting back to normal now. And this and this is a clear sign of that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Will. We'll see you next week. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. That is our episode for this week. So, Josh, where can everyone reach you? Because you've got the podcast, and then I see you doing commentary on other <laughs> stuff, and then you're working defending people. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm hustling. I'm trying. Uh, you can find me on Instagram or uh, Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ, and also please t- tune into the podcast, uh, a True Crime Daily Sidebar. We're releasing the episode. Wednesday, March 2nd, we're releasing an episode this morning, uh, an interview with Ashley Wilcott from uh, Court TV. So I, I hope everybody tunes in and enjoys it. Oh, fun. Fabulous. Okay. You can find me at Anna G News on all social media. We also want to make sure to thank our special sponsor, HelloFresh, for supporting this podcast. We're very appreciative of that. You can find all of our episodes wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to our True Crime Daily channel on YouTube. And don't forget to sign up and receive our newsletter. I actually checked on this last night with our executive producer. I said, really? (laughs) And yes, yes, we still send it out weekly. Just wanted to make sure, you know, no false advertising here. (laughs) Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime.